Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Appraisal Buzzcast. If you haven't already subscribed, make sure to do so below, and you'll get notified when we post our newest episodes. I'm Jim Morrison, and thankfully today we have our, our founder and CEO, Joan Trice, back with us. She'll be speaking with George Dell to discuss the hot topic of market value and how appraisers should handle it during a crazy market. Joan, I'll hand it over to you. Jim, thank you very much. And George, it's great seeing you. And I saw you just a few weeks ago at Valuation Expo in Las Vegas, and you were in the audience when my particular panel on modernizing uh, the appraisal process was under discussion. And one of the topics was the definition of market value. And uh, you shared with the audience, I thought was hysterically funny. You you rewrote the, the definition, but go ahead and uh, tell us about some upcoming events that you have. And then let's dive into talking about market value. Sure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah. Very briefly, I do a weekly webinar that's free. Haven't missed a week in over five years. And the philosophy of that is I don't give answers. I just ask uncomfortable questions. Also teach a class, Stats, Graphs, and Data Science that answers some of these issues that we're talking about today. And then, of course, uh, I do a monthly webinar uh, and coming up December 3rd, Lyle Ratke with, with Fannie Mae. Actually, the first one I did was about five months ago. It was on price indexing time adjustments, and I was absolutely blown out. We had over a thousand people sign up. Right wow, that, that's right. a big audience. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. knock me off my chair. Yeah, uh, that, right, right at a thousand. We we had to increase the uh, the fee to Zoom twice. We had to break it to five hundred and then to a thousand to get everybody in there. So it's worked. Yeah. And then I also do a, write a, a paid uh, report, uh, the the asset analyst report. Anyway, what we're talking about uh, there with the market value thing was a group think thing. And and 10, 12 years ago, I was thinking, you know, we're really ignoring some elements of that market value definition. Not some of them. We're we're ignoring most of them. Well, I'm ta- I'm talking about where my brain went. My brain was in this groupthink thing, like, oh, it's perfectly okay. Then I started to question, and I said, so let let me break the definition down into some bullet points. Okay, buyer seller acting prudently, knowledgeably, not affected by undue stimulus. Oh, well, wait a minute, we got this. Yeah, what is undue stimulus? That one, that one bothered helicopter me. money. Well, and just like you said, the more I looked at this, the more I asked myself questions, the more issues came up. Typically motivated. Well, they weren't motivated, well-informed, well-advised, reasonable exposure time, cash dollars, that was okay, unaffected by special creative financing, that bothered me too. So, wow, you know, know, we're kind of ignoring all this, and yet appraisers were getting blamed for all the damage. So, that's groupthink, when everybody thinks the same way, but it's wrong. And everybody thinks it's okay. So I I said, what was actually happening? I called it the George Dell operative definition of market value. What was really happening? Well, buyer and seller were each acting speculatively with the exuberance. Remember those words, over over exuberance? I I stole that word. Uh, Irrational exuberance was Robert Schiller's. uh, Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Affected by universal euphoria. Do you remember how we were all going to be rich? Everything was going to be wonderful from this point on in life and the whole world. Buyer and seller are avariciously motivated to get mine. Let me get mine. Both parties are uninformed and advised by commission salespeople. Just get the commission. (laughs) 
reasonable time for exposure. I said, oh, well, that one's okay. And then payment and cash, gee, that one felt okay too. Later on, I changed even those. Uh, and then finally, the properties, the normal consideration enabled by unrestricted special and creative financing provided by commission salespeople. Well, and I go, wow, this is what was really happening. And then later on, if I can expand on this, uh, I, I, my, my assistant, Cindy, uh, said, well, she said, George, um, if I recall correctly, there was no exposure time at all. People were lined up to buy houses. There, there, there was a waiting list. There was no exposure time at all. So I had to re- revise that bullet point also. Then push forward about two or three years, I was doing my specialty, which is uh, valuing views with some of those really expensive homes overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And there was this one project I walked into and these are like multi, multi, all multi-million dollars houses, between three and seven, 10, 12 million dollars. And I realized that it was hard, half of them, about half of them were, were vacant or more, very few people even there. And, I, and my brain said, well, okay, these are very wealthy people. They have three or four houses. So I didn't expect them to be there. Then as I researched it some more, I realized that about one third of the sales were, are you ready for this, were to Chinese nationals were bringing their money over here because they felt their money was safer in Southern California with a view. And they they were the highest and best use for them was not a home, a place to live. It was a place to park their money. Right. It, it was it was just a way of uh, leveraging. So they're not typically motivated. No, it was, yeah. you know, so the, the assumption of highest and best use being a home was wrong. So there we go. Seven out of seven were wrong. <laughs> on the definition of market Fred, value. Let me ask you a question. And I go back and, and forth in that. I, I, well, I have multiple questions, George. But number one is, do you think that the definition of market value is sufficient? Or do you think we need to uh, open it up and and take a look and and maybe talk about or at least consider something similar to what the Europeans do, which is a sustainable lending value. Absolutely, I, I'm not sure if I completely comfortable with the word sustainable value, but something close to that, or just a lending value, and then within yeah. the definition. Um, yeah, when I first became an appraiser, uh, I was I was appraising to loan value as well as market value. And then one of our clients wanted a quick sale price. So I was already dealing with all kinds of definite, right. Right. Yeah. And particularly with the uh, bias and racial bias issues, uh, actually interesting. I'm I'm coming to the the CRN that you're doing in in Sarasota. And I find it interesting that uh, Ed Pinto with the AEI is one of your speakers. Mm -hmm. And I know he's come out in favor of something like a fundamental value. And the fundamental value is not market price. I mean, market price sometimes is not the real value. Fundamental value is the, the, the value of housing as related to all other, all other goods and services, including food and transportation and schooling, everything else. So fundamental value. Well, he's come out actually using those words, fundamental value. And, and then Andre Perry, who is politically, I, I, I love the contrast that you have of these two speakers. And yet, from what yeah, because they're both going to be speaking on December seventh oh, at the it. CRN meeting. That, 
Thank you for having them both. Yeah. I'm looking forward. Yeah. But Andre Perry from the Brookings uh, Metro hasn't used the word fundamental value, but one of his proposed possible solutions for bias or perceived bias or value differences in those neighborhoods is what is effectively fundamental value. So I, if I, when I'm there, I'm going to take the opportunity to possibly say, hey, you guys agree on something. <laughs> The fundamental value concept, which may or may not be a tool for solving whatever problems may or may not exist, but I'm just trying to help find solutions, and that's one of them. Things. Uh, yes, different, different, uh, something other than market price. Uh, the, our definition of market value is not really market value; it's market price. No, I agree, and it just the very opening market value means the most probable price. As soon as they mention the word price. Right. That's that's when the whole definition falls apart. Sure. I think sure. honestly, the rest of it, I I don't have a problem with, other than you know they're using price and 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 value interchangeably, and as you said, they're they're not, not always interchangeable, and that also leads me to the discussion of AVMs. Is an AVM really a sale price model? It's not a valuation model, is it? Looking for better turn times, the ability to automate routine tasks and stay in compliance with your appraisal management process. Evo state-of-the-art appraisal management technology for residential and commercial real estate lenders and AMCs was built with the user in mind. Evo streamlines the appraisal experience with configurable workflow design that automates 100% of routine tasks, alerts you along the way, and gives you powerful reports to make timely decisions. It's the only platform in the market with total customizations out of the box without IT development intervention. Find out more at globaldms.com or call 877-866-2747. Joan, back to you. Thank you, Jim. So George, let's get back to the discussion of um, price versus value for a minute. is is an AVM really an AVM or is it an SPM, a sale price model? You know, you do to me what I do to other people, ask difficult questions. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you know or not, I'm, I'm uh, actively involved with the AVM standards uh, committee right now that, uh, under the appraisal foundation. I thought it was a timely topic. And uh, it's always been a, an interesting. I, I've done a AVM consulting to AVM companies and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a, a comfortable topic for me. You know, what I can always come back to is the appraisal, the valuation process is the valuation process. Everything else is a matter of who does it and when. The appraisal process is really very simple. You get the data, you, you, you massage the data, you predict from the data, and then you communicate it or, or interpret it. Four things. Uh, and AVMs, appraisals, BPOs, evaluations, they're, they're, they really all follow exactly those four same steps. It's a matter of who does it and when. Well, is an AVM really a sale price model as opposed to a valuation model? Because if you're going to have a valuation model, don't you have to have, be able to analyze these things in a definition of market value? A machine can't analyze what the tip, the motivations of a buyer and seller, or if they're informed, or 
if there's seller concessions, I don't think an AVM knows any of those things. Well, yeah, yeah, yes and no. An AVM is actually able to find figure some of those things out better than appraisers can, as it turns out. That's my Give me an example of that, George. Again, I have to go back to my my background is uh, I have substantial graduate education in economics, econometrics uh, and statistics. And I was already an appraiser when I went back to school, taking class after class, graduate level classes. But one of the things that piqued me, and it was all everything I learned, I was trying to figure out how does this apply to appraisal. And one of my earliest models that bothered me actually actually goes back to this definition of market value. Uh, this was like two two and a half cycles ago, and one of my clients did a lot of uh, what they considered uh, affordable community area. And this one particular neighborhood, about 25% of the house, 20, 25% of the houses were owned by banks. They were REOs. And I would run into doing a simple, basic house. I was doing a lot of houses at that time. And right across the street and one door over would be an identical property that just sold, but it was bank owned. So, you know, well, okay, so that has to be a different motivation. And what I learned in my economics classes, if you don't have a variable that measures motivation, you find another variable that's highly correlated to what you're looking for, highly correlated to motivation, but highly uncorrelated to everything else in the world. And MLS was still pretty crude back then, but I thought, well, what what field in the MLS could help me here? Uh, and, And economists literally make their whole career on discovering one uh, stand-in variable uh, like this. And I thought, oh my God, it's occupant. Bank-owned properties were, are generally vacant. And there was this field in my MLS that had three, three possible answers that the brokers could plug in. Vacant, V-A-C, tenant, T-E-N, and owner, O-W-N. So I just simply compared the owner occupied to the vacant and lo and behold, I, it was a large enough neighborhood. It was easy for me to gather data and throw it into a spreadsheet yeah. and compare those two. And Joan, I got to tell you, at that time, the difference was so consistent, about 8 9 10%. And it got worse. It went up to as high as 14% difference for vacant properties. And then over time, it kept going down, 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 until a few years later, we're talking about how markets shift. The market completely went the other way, and literally, the vacant houses started selling for more by two or three percent. And you go, well, how could that be? Well, you can just hear a couple that's uh, trying to buy a house. Hey, Ma, I found one that we can move into right away. Let's right. get that one. So the motive, and and I, I tracked that particular neighborhood for many years, and it went from as high as 14, 15, 16 percent to minus three, four percent. So yes, is it measuring motivation directly? No, but is it fairly reliable? It works. It works. That was one of my first successes in in using uh, algorithms and econometric methods for valuation. Do you think there are flaws in the current residential process? And I'm almost thinking more policy that's guiding, not that the not that the theoretical process, I'm talking about what we're actually doing. And what I'm trying to lead you to is we're only doing one approach to value, the sales price approach to value. Right. 
And, you know, what happens when you kick the other two legs of that three-legged stool out from under? We're just, aren't we doing the sale price approach to value as opposed to market value? Yes. Yes, exactly. Again, I'm you glad asked, you agree with me because I think uh, this conversation <laughs> would have been over. <laughs> well, you, you, you ask one question, I hear five questions, and I'm thinking about yeah, the relationship. To bias and the most definition, my brain just goes goes nuts. Should we be doing three approaches to value, and and especially, I mean, in this crazy market, as Jim defined it, you know, as an example, the income approach. Well, not every house is rented, but boy, with the advent of today's technology in short-term rental markets with uh, Airbnb and VRBO, people are actually buying properties specifically for short-term rentals. And not everybody, not every property qualifies in, to be even uh, leased on a short-term basis. So I, I, I see this as really impacting value rather tremendously and we're ignoring it sure you know when when they like the appraisal institute and our other organizations the society started years ago there, there were six or seven approaches to value then it got cut down to five then it got down to three or four and, and it pretty well stuck on three ever since my personal belief is that uh, we really are only using one approach to value, as you call the sales sales comparison approach. Um, and uh, the cost approach really is just a form of what can I substitute with a new house for the, the house I've got? So it, it's in a, in a manner, yeah, okay, I see you're smiling. It's really just another form of the sales comparison. I, I see it though as a mathematical proof. Sure. Sure. Which is why it's necessary because, I mean, I, I started life as a commercial appraiser. And when those two numbers were really far apart, it made me sit back and go, you know, what is going on here? Right. And and it just makes you think that whole reconciliation process is lost when you're not reconciling multiple approaches. Oh, I agree. It helps my appraiser head ask the right questions. It's using yeah. the, the the visual and the summary statistics, if you want to call it that, helps me ask the right question. And actually, the income approach is even more interesting uh, because although it's a ratio like capitalization rates and gross income multiplier, well, you know, up until 10, 15, 20, about 15, 20 years ago, the GIM for residential was considered part of the sales comparison approach. And yet it's really an income approach, which yeah. to me is like, ah, I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I basically believe that there really is only one approach. In fact, where we use the evidence-based valuation or data science viewpoint on uh, valuing or appraising, uh, there, there's only one approach. And it's just a matter of which variables tell you the, tell the tale better. Yeah. And you, they're all in one formula. Indeed. So uh, let's break right here for another commercial message and we'll be right back. Appraisers, what if you could inspect, photograph and measure a home without leaving yours? With RemoteVal, you get to harness the power of new technology without giving up your process or compromising on quality. With our easy to use software, you connect to the homeowner's phone and complete your inspection as you normally would. 
Remote Val lets you capture high quality meta tagged photos, take accurate measurements and communicate directly with the homeowner to get the information you need. Remote Val is fast, easy to use and completely free for appraisers. To see a demo of Remote Val in action, visit incenteram.com. That's incenteram.com. Joan, back to you. Thank you, Jim. So, George, let's talk a little bit about, and, and we've had this discussion for multiple decades, is art versus science. I know the whole world wants less art, more science. We're, we are trying to measure the behavior of humans. Yes. It's kind of tricky, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my answer to that is um, what we really need is better art and better science. In fact, my, my end conclusion is that the ideal solution is a proper blend optimization of the art with the science. When I became an appraisal, just scratching together three or four comps was 80% of the job. Uh, I'd make a phone call and the broker would call back and I'd take a deep breath. I, I got this one nailed. I turned it over to the typist and two days later, I get that back. I edit it with a red pen and two days later, it's it's done. And and then data started getting easier. I mean, a long story made short, today it's really easy. In two tenths of a second, I do what took me uh, four days before. Right. Uh, and the, the, the nature of the challenge that appraiser have, have faced is that we used to the job was scratching together three or four comps today it's how do you make sense out of 12 or 120 or 12,000 data points and then what do you do when you genuinely only have one or zero comps i mean true comps it, but it's a whole spectrum and that's what data science uh, really really addresses so and, and really this is the essence of my my class the stats graphs and data science classes uh, how to use the science the the, the stats the, the the numbers to help you help the human brain your brain your educated trained appraiser brain ask the right questions so the computer is really almost infallible on running algorithms but it takes a human to decide on the model is it which approach is it is the cost approach relevant in this case so basically using science to sharpen and deepen and broaden the the human judgment science is not the enemy it's the friend we need to capture it and use it to our own benefit and not only our own benefit but for the benefit of the consumers of the taxpayers the public good uh, eliminate these uh, economic All the other stakeholders yeah, yeah, yeah. i agree yeah, yeah. I, I made my mission statement about 15 years ago i said what am i really after when i i've kind of been in a semi-retired state and i said my, my ideal my ideal mission statement is to help prevent the next economic meltdown even Amen. if it's a little tiny bit that I can help that, that's, my, that's my mission. <laughs> Amen. And I don't think there's anything in the current appraisal process that will uh, raise red flags and identify uh, a potential um, crisis coming our way. So with that, George, I think we'll probably be doing some follow-ups because I can... I could talk to you all day about this topic and um, and maybe we will. Well, that's my problem. If nothing else, I'll see you December 7th in Sarasota. Yes, indeed. Thank you, George. Thank you.
If you've grown frustrated with endlessly pursuing new appraisal work and not reaping any of the benefits, Metro West is here to help. They understand and work to alleviate the pain points commonly felt by appraisers to enable personal and financial growth for their staff. After all, they've been owned and operated by appraisers since the company opened in 1987. Metro West Appraisal is an equal opportunity employer. They're always looking for certified residential real estate appraisers to join their team. Visit metrowestappr.com slash careers or email careers at metrowestappr.com. Thank you so much, George and Joan. We really appreciate your time today. And thank you to all of our uh, appraisers for listening to us. And thank you for the sponsors for helping support us. If you have an idea for a future Buzzcast and would like to be interviewed, reach out to us at info at appraisalbuzz.com. Thanks and have a great day.